Hi, everybody. This is Pete Worrell, and I'd like to welcome you to this month's episode of Positive Enterprise Value. Positive Enterprise Value's podcast is hosted on Bigelow LLC's website, which is bigelowllc.com, where you can find other information we freely share with high-performing entrepreneur owner managers who want to build their enterprise value and possibly create a capital gain someday. For over 30 years, I've had the fun of working with thousands of seasoned, successful private business owners and working closely with hundreds and hundreds of them. I've seen that successfully striving for achievement and ultimately fulfillment leaves clues, kind of like breadcrumbs in the forest that we can follow. So deconstructing the behavior of high-performing owner managers lets us learn a lot about peak performance and optimal experience, doesn't it? That's why in this series of podcasts, I interview seasoned, successful entrepreneur owner managers who are high performers, maybe even peak performers in their niche domains. What do you do when you start off in your career, you begin to work in the consulting business, learn an awful lot over a short period of time, decide to start up a technology-based business on the West Coast, raise venture capital to do that, only to find that three or four years later, the industry around you has changed and you've run through your venture funding and it's turned out not to be the success that you've thought. Just about then, the tragedy of 9-11 happens. You reassess your thoughts about your future life, move to Boulder, Colorado, and in 2001, start up Juniper Books. That's a little bit of the opening paragraph of my dialogue with Thatcher Wine who is the owner-entrepreneur of Juniper Books located in Boulder. Juniper Books isn't a bookstore. It's a very unusual niche provider of curated libraries for institutions and high net worth individuals. And in so doing, it also provides its patented IP on the covers or the bindings of those books in a very clever, interesting, and artistically beautiful way. Thatcher, who is a graduate of Dartmouth College, uh, is a very thoughtful entrepreneur as well as being a successful author. He's recently authored the fabulous coffee table book called For the Love of Books, Designing and Curating a Home Library. And I love this book. It's, I have two copies of it, and uh, one of them is in my home library, and one of them is right here with me uh, at Bigelow. Thatcher and I had a wonderful uh, hour-long conversation where we covered topics ranging from his growing up years in an entrepreneurial household to his startup years at Juniper, and even before that, to making the transition from a rugged individual to a unique team, and some of what he sees ahead. He's very candid and open with us about some of the professional and personal challenges he's faced along the way and talks a little bit about what he sees for the future of Juniper Books and Thatcher Wine. I hope you enjoy this as much as I do. This was recorded uh, in the last week of October 2019 at Juniper Books headquarters uh, in Boulder, Colorado. Here we are at the world headquarters of Juniper Books in Boulder. Thank you so much for being with me this morning. Yeah, welcome to beautiful Boulder, Colorado. A nice sunny fall morning. It is a beautiful day, and uh, I heard there might be a little snow tonight, which will be fun too. 
yeah, we've got kind of interesting weather here. <laughs> Had our first snowstorm a couple of weeks ago, and looks like we've got a couple more coming up in, in the next week. Cool. Yeah. Cool. So Thatcher Wine and I are um, having a positive enterprise value uh, podcast here in Boulder this morning. And Thatcher was just uh, generous enough to give me a quick tour of Juniper Books. And it makes me ask Thatcher, you and I both have a love of books. Um, and we have a curiosity, I think, about business also. Was it truly love of books that brought you into this business? Or what was it? Um, it was, I mean, my love of books was really a hobby and a personal interest right. and very much a business later and not a business that I, I said one day I'm going to go into the book business and I'm going to do all these creative niche things in the book world that nobody had ever done before. It's really an evolution over the time. But I think at its foundation, it, it goes back to two things in my childhood. One was that I always wanted to be an entrepreneur and the other was that I, I love books. I love reading. I love learning. And I felt like books were just an unlimited source of that for me personally. Never in a million years thought I'd put the two together. Um, grew up in a very entrepreneurial family. I was just going to ask you that. You yeah. said you always wanted to be an entrepreneur. Were your parents uh, entrepreneurs? Did they have a, set that example for you? They were. Um, so my, my father was a lawyer, um, University of Chicago, law school. Moved to New York, worked on Wall Street, and then got a little burnt out on it and started opening some businesses on the side. One of them was a restaurant uh, in upstate New York. And one thing led to another, and uh, he couldn't get a reliable chef, so he stepped into the kitchen one night and cooked dinner for the for the customers, um, and went on to become like a world famous chef. And they they moved back to New York City, had a legendary restaurant in New York in the '80s called the Quilted Giraffe, um, and we grew up above it. So I, you know, they'd call me and say, "Mick Jagger's here for dinner. You want to come down and meet him?" And so he brought that record album right there downstairs and had him sign it. Let it bleed. Yep. <laughs> so uh, I was going to ask you that. So it was your first job in the restaurant? Yeah. I mean, my first 10 jobs were in the restaurant. Right. So they'd, you know, if it was a rainy day, they'd, they'd call upstairs and say, you know, do you, you or your sister want to come down and make some money and, and be in the coat room? <laughs> uh, later on, I worked as a waiter, worked as a cook, um, did all sorts of stuff um, for the restaurant. So, so they were very entrepreneurial. My mom ran the front of the house. My dad ran the kitchen. Um, grandparents were entrepreneurs. Oh. Pretty much, you know, three or four generations were all very entrepreneurial. Are your parents still with us? They are. Um, they're not together. Yeah. Um, and, and are they in, involved in the hospitality business at all? Um, my dad sort of uh, still. For years he was, you know, consulting for hotels and sort of matchmaking. When somebody needed a great chef, he'd, he'd find them, you know, a chef for no their, kidding. their restaurant. And, oh. Yeah. And he's, he's kind of a New York celebrity and... You know, it's fun to go out to dinner with him in New York City, and he knows everybody and gets sent all sorts of, you know, delicious <laughs> things over and so, over again. So New York is a long ways from Boulder in many, on many different scales. Uh, tell me about that. Well, I came to Colorado for the first time when I was 11. Um, so I, my parents didn't ski. Um, signed up for a school ski trip in, like, uh, third or fourth grade. Went to Hunter Mountain, um, which is ironic that it's just acquired by Vail. Um, and they, so I fell in love with skiing. I sort of figured out, you know, who skied among my friends and, and got an invite out to Colorado with one of them and fell in love with Colorado. Literally went home, did a, 
school exercise, you know, about where do you see yourself in 20 years? And I said, you know, living in the Colorado mountains, Whoa. sitting by the fire <laughs> with my, uh, my dog and a Coke. And uh, I don't drink Coke, but, um, but I do have a very cute dog now. And yeah, just fell in love with the mountains and tried to get back here as much as possible. Didn't actually think I could live here. Mm -hmm. um, I always had to be in like a city, you know, to do the entrepreneurial things I wanted to do. Um, but eventually in 2001, um, right after September 11th, um, I was living in LA and I decided, you know, that I should live where I wanted to live, somewhere that really nourished my soul. Did you really have sort of an aha moment on that from the 9 I did, yeah. yeah. I mean, having grown up in New York and yeah. having, you know, friends that were, you know, involved in, and didn't survive the day, um, and having the opportunity that my previous startup that I had started a couple of years before had gone out of business a few months before and I was kind of soul searching about what I want to do and where I want to live. It just all kind of clicked and I was like, I'm just going to move to Colorado um, and do, you know, live where I want to live and start a business. I'm not sure exactly what it'll be and, and hopefully the rest will fall into place. And, and see, I think I remember, I could be mistaken about this from an earlier conversation of you and I had about your uh, path to getting here. Uh, when you left uh, undergraduate school, didn't you go to work for one of the large consulting firms? I did, yeah. So I lived in Boston for a couple of years working for Monitor Company. Oh, yes, Monitor. Yep. Yep. And then moved with them out to L.A. Yeah. Uh, so I had a year-long consulting project in Alaska with them. Huh. So it was a little easier to commute to Alaska from L.A. and then from Boston. <laughs> and, and was that uh, formative? I mean, some people would say that one of the great things about uh, consulting firms like that is you get to go to school every day. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. It was a huge learning opportunity. Um, not only, I mean, just at so many levels, really, about financial modeling, about strategy consulting, about being with really smart people and building presentations and storytelling, um, working with lots of interesting clients with different business challenges. So it was really fascinating. Um, and there was a lot invested in professional development and just personal psychology. Sure. Um, and and I still apply a lot of those lessons, you know, to these days. So I thought it was a, a fantastic place to start. I'm still friends with a lot of people. I'm just going to ask you that. Are yeah. you in touch with any of your colleagues from there? Yeah, absolutely. Um, several of them are still great friends and, yeah. and talk to them on a regular basis and occasionally, you know, bounce ideas off of them about current business challenges and, and what they're up to. Would you say that when you were there, so like you were there right after college, right? Yeah. So like you were there from age 22 to 26? Yeah, probably 25, yeah. Okay, and, and would you say that while you were there that you still had in your mind you were going to be a business owner of your own someday? Oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, I was there to learn. I, I wasn't there to be a, a consultant for life. Yeah. Um, so I was definitely there to learn how to run my own business, um, see you know problems that other businesses had and, and opportunities. Did that actually happen? Did you get a spark for a business that you wanted to be in? I got, so it was, this was 1994 to 1997. Yeah. Um, so it was the early days of internet. 1.0. Right. Um, I think Bigelow plugged into the internet in 94. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. And I think my interest at the time was very much in technology and what could the internet do for people's businesses. Um, so had a little bit of a subspecialty while there, you know, advising on, you know, what we thought was the future of technology and connectivity and things like that. Um, so I, it was more, I don't think I was ready to leave to start my own business. So I left to go work for a, a smaller internet development company out in LA. Um, it was building websites and intranet sites, yes. um, some words that aren't necessarily used today. Um, and helped, you know, some of the early, 
internet companies like Auto Vitel with their oh, yeah. business plans and, and building their technology. And, um, you know, it was there that I got a spark for a business idea, which was seeing all these companies that were going online and basically putting up their marketing and sales presence, but having terrible customer service. So they all kind of went online and didn't realize, oh, now it's going to be easier for these customers to reach us. And we don't know how to answer an email. Right. Um, so I had this idea of, of creating a company called Feedback Direct, where you could have one site people could go to to reach thousands of companies. So instead of going to you know GE and Ford Motor and all that and trying to navigate their site, could you come to one site, our site, and you know submit a complaint or your warranty question or a compliment or, or anything really, and get customer service? And was the business model that the GE or the whoever would be paying you to do that? Eventually. Yes. yes. Yeah, like any true <laughs> business, internet business model in those era, there there may not have been a great business model. Um, it's a great it's idea about getting traffic and how to go and aggregating all this data and yeah. then kind of selling it back to the companies. Yeah. Um, uh, so raised a couple million dollars, built a fifteen-person team, built a great website, um, then ran out of money. The two thousand one crash hit. Yeah. Um, and we, you know close the doors just we, we'd never sold anything <laughs> we, we had a great product and great presence but it was just you know unless you had a lot of money in the bank in those days you couldn't keep your internet startup afloat right right um so what did you take away from that experience uh it took away a lot of things i mean one was to you know create something that people are willing to pay for um first and really talk to your customers i think i think the other reason it failed was that it turned out, and this is kind of obvious in hindsight, that the companies didn't want us, an intermediary, knowing their dirty laundry. Mm -hmm. So they didn't want somebody in between. They wanted somebody who was going to complain. They wanted them to come directly to them. Um, so the business model was a little flawed, and I tried mm -hmm. to pivot it to be more of a small business customer service solution, mm -hmm. providing email tools and things like that. Um, so it kind of took away that you know I should talk to the customers a lot earlier, not be so secretive and worried that someone's going to copy me. Um, go talk to customers first, make sure it's a good idea and that there is a business model there that could be sustainable. Yeah, I think in technology businesses uh, over the past uh, 25 plus years, many of which I've seen are, take the point of view of build it and they'll come. Right. And that's, um, and, and many of the technology either prodigies or technology tinkerers yeah. that I've met who've been super successful eventually uh, did sort of take that approach at first, right? We built a better whatever, and then the facing the customer part was sort of a second thought. Right, right. Yeah, no, I mean, there are a lot of lessons about what, you know, what are the fundamental building blocks. And, and you know, if you're not a super well-funded tech startup that's, you know, going for scale and trying to own the market and then come back and kind of fill in the, the true business model and make money, you know, that's that's a unicorn. That's like the, you know infinitesimal part of the market but right. it gets a lion's share of the press it does so you think that you're supposed to build your business that way um were you having fun doing that with building your team and i did i mean it was super fun i was you know 27 years old yeah when i got funded you're and pitching these vc guys on what the future is going to be yeah and it was it was great we also on the road trying to talk to potential customers um a little bit. I mean, there was a good amount of, you know, going to like the Red Herring Conference, oh, yeah. you know, which is super yeah. fun. Just I forgot about that. Other, yeah. <laughs> like meeting tech entrepreneurs and yeah. like, you know, these guys that were, you know, making or breaking startups by yeah. writing about them. Um, so it was a super fun era to be in the business. At the same time, I mean, I, I was burnt out. I, you know, I had 
worked really hard since graduating from college. Um, and on this particular startup, you know, I was a little bit of, of a martyr, like working harder than everyone else, always being the first one there and the last one to leave and um, got pretty run down and, and to be honest, got burnt down on technology. Sure. <laughs> so by the end of it, um, and this all kind of leads into what I ended up doing afterwards, um, you know, felt like I just needed some time off um, and need to get back to basics. And so one of the big takeaways of like running this, you know, virtual startup that, you know, on paper, it was like, we're going to have a hundred thousand customers and then a million and then 10 million, you know, but it was all just on paper. Yes. And I, one of the big takeaways that I, is that I really needed to do something tangible and physical and concrete. And that's essentially what led me to books that, you know, buying and selling them one at a time to one customer at a time was com the complete antithesis of what I had spent the past couple of years doing. And, and that really was uh, where you went from Los Angeles, right? You, you became uh, a person who was buying and selling uh, collectible books one at a time, small collections at a time, before you actually landed here with the Juniper Books idea. Yeah, I mean, I, I basically took a year off um, or six months off and had some kind of a renaissance year. Was it and, good? Uh, yeah, it was amazing, yeah. What was I, your, what you was know, your plan? I, uh, my plan was to kind of nurture my soul yeah. <laughs> and you know, not look at a screen. And this was you know, 2001, so the iPhone wasn't even invented. Right. <laughs> I knew I was looking at a screen too much. <laughs> um, and so you know, I went on a yoga retreat, I learned flamenco guitar, took pottery classes, did some painting, uh, relearned French, which I'd studied long before. Wow, you, you were really intentional about this. Yeah. Wow. That's yeah. A, and and um, did it have the desired effect? It did. And then, you know, I, I felt good. I felt like my brain was working and slowing down and absorbing information in a way that it, it hadn't for the previous couple of years. Um, and I was reconnecting with some friends and family. And were, were you single at this point? I was. Yeah. 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 Um, and so one of the things I did when I actually went back to Dartmouth in New Hampshire and uh, took French intensive French program there. Yeah. And one John of my Rossius was yeah Rossius program yeah. exactly yeah. And one of my friends who lived nearby, was a classmate from college, was like a third generation bookseller in rural New Hampshire. And so he was like, yeah, why don't you like after the program's done, come over and hang out. So I like you know come over to his house and lime, and uh, you know follow him around to some antique auctions and he goes around and you know buys 50 boxes of dusty old books and then he you know, pulls out a, a book and he's like, oh, it's a first edition Jules Verne. <laughs> and I was like, this is kind of cool and fun. Like, I'm going to go make this one of my hobbies when I get back to LA. And, um, you know, just started going to estate sales and antique auctions and buying books and putting them on eBay. That's mainly what the business was back then. Uh, again, didn't plan on making that like a business. It was just sort of a placeholder for, you know, something to make a little bit of money while I was figuring out what to do. And during that time, so you'd been a monitor, you did the startup, what was that called again? Feedback Direct. Feedback Direct. And you very intentionally took this year of uh, refreshment, rejuvenation. Uh, it's what my wife calls repletion. She said, when okay. you get depleted, you got to get repleted. <laughs> like um, were you reflecting on for yourself? where your skills or what I would call your unique ability is? Was it operating as an individual or was it operating as part of a team? And along with that, did you feel like you were having more fun operating as an individual or operating as part of a team? 
Um, it's a good question. I think, you know, most things I've done as an individual um, in my professional career. And, you know, even though the, the start of my career was much more team focused, um, I mean, I did have the conclusion after Feedback Direct that, you know, perhaps I should have had a business partner or a team to kind of smooth out, you know, some of the, especially the energy differences, you know, um, to, to share the workload. Um, but that didn't, because I think, because Juniper Books really was a hobby I turned into a business, there was never any beginning that where I was like, I should have a team build this book business. So was, was there ever a founder. point where you sort of said, I'm going to write a business plan and, you know, do this proper? No. Right. No. Should, <laughs> should I do that? Yeah. I don't think so. I don't think you need to. But, but... So you're saying it was all an evolution. Yeah. And while you did some very intentional things during the evolution, you continue to let some doors open. Yeah. Is that your personal style? I think so. Yeah. And I, I don't think I necessarily knew that until, you know, looking backwards. Um, and that, but I think I've made it more of my style once I came to that recognition in the past few years, to be honest. Um, so I've had the business for 18 years now. Um, could you say, say a little bit about the business, right, where sure. it is now? Oh, okay, yeah, sure. So, I mean, Juniper Books um, was founded in 2001, so we've been around for 18 years. Uh, we have 15 employees, ship all around the world, and we were recognized as kind of the market leader in curating book collections and libraries, um, both for residential clients as well as for commercial properties. So everything from, you know, a high-end residence in Aspen to a hotel lobby in Dubai, you know, if they want somebody who can really think about what books they should be getting and make them look beautiful, um, we're the market leader in that. And then starting about 10 years ago, I began experimenting with um, custom book jackets. So instead of just accepting the books that, you know, are published as they are and what they look like, could we transform what they look like in the colors and images that go across the spines and bookshelves that make up artwork. And have increasingly grown a product line on that side of the business. So we, we have sets of Harry Potter and seven different designs. So if you're in Gryffindor, Ravenclaw, you can get book jackets that match, you know, the house that you're being sorted into if you're a real fan of the, the novels. Um, and we've got 300 other book sets that we make, everything from, you know, skiing book sets to mountaineering, cookbooks, kids books and everything. So, you know, it's all about this, this love of books and making books, kind of reinventing books for the modern age taking some of the things I learned over the years about technology and customer service, really, and listening to your customers, and, and then you know, taking something that people already love, the printed book that's been around for 500 years, and giving it a, a new life, giving people more reasons to buy books, keep them, and read them, hopefully. And um, I have to say that as I look at books and look at their physical manifestation, but also the titling of books. I do think that one of the things I frequently find is when I read a book, well, wow, that was a really great book. And the thing I disliked most about it was the title. And the second thing I disliked most about it was the cover. Mm -hmm. And yet what I found uh, in publishing a book uh, and authoring a book was that the publisher, in my case, McGraw-Hill, insisted that they titled the book mm -hmm. and insisted that they designed the cover. And they did all this stature before they ever read the book. Right. Are you, do you find that to be common? Absolutely, yeah. 
and so I just wrote my first book and it came out about six weeks ago. Um, Which, by the way, is called For the Love of Books and you can get it on Amazon if you haven't seen it. I strongly, strongly urge you to do it. I got an early copy and I absolutely love it. And it's on the coffee table in my uh, sitting area outside my kitchen. And there's another copy in the sitting area at the headquarters of Bigelow. And people pick it up and just uh, just love, sort of fawn over it. That Both the beauty, the graphical beauty of it, but also what it says. And I think it really does reflect for the love of books. Mm -hmm. Thank you. I appreciate you saying all that. And um, I think... I'm happy to talk more about the book, but yeah, I mean, in answer do. to your question, yeah. I mean, I, I think I'm intimately familiar with it from, you know, these issues in a way that I wasn't really before, even though I've been in the book business for a long time, I've never really written a book and participate in those conversations about what should we call it? Yeah. You know, what should be on the cover? Fortunately, because we're somewhat experts in designing book covers, they, they let us, <laughs> Good. Um, you know, design and photograph and, and participate in that process, which was great. I don't think it's something that a lot of people have the opportunity to do. But I think one thing that's really different about what we do is, is we give people permission to look at books as objects. And it's something that, you know, people can be snobby or t very intellectual. You know, a book is only a book. It's only about the content on the pages. It's only for reading. And I think people, whether it's authors or booksellers or librarians or readers, um, have felt like they, they can't think about the life of a book beyond reading the pages, the story, the information in it. But the reality is that, you know, we're, we're sitting here in my office and I've got a few hundred books on the shelves. I can't read all those at any given time. I might be able to read one of them. The rest of them are on the shelves and they should be doing something while they're on the shelves. They should be looking good for my office. They should be telling the story of who I am. You know, you should be able to look at them and say, you know, can I ask you about this book? Or I didn't know you were interested in this subject or you like this author. Um, and so they really tell that story of, of a space and of who we are. And my book is really all about that, um, really looking at your bookshelves in a new way. And it, it takes the philosophy that I've developed over the past, you know, the history of the business um, and puts it down on paper so that people can think about it themselves without ever hiring us or buying anything from us. They can just look at their own bookshelves and say, ah, that's why I have those books from college. Or maybe I should give away those books from they were gifted to me that I, I don't really care about. They're not really part of my story. Mm -hmm. Or maybe I should have these collections for my kids or in the guest room to inspire them to, to read um, and learn something. So, so it's all about, it all comes back to the love of books. Yeah, I so hear you about that. I had to chuckle to myself uh, an hour ago when we were going through, you're touring your uh, headquarters here and you um, unthinkingly, I think, uh, leaned over and straightened up a book and then put it, took another book and put it on top of a, one sideways. And I think you were doing that for the aesthetic of that. And I laughed to myself because you're the only person other than me that I've seen do that. Because to me, um, you know, the content of the book is really important. And actually, um, I'm pretty, um, going to say, Machiavellian about giving away or discarding books where I don't like the content or I didn't resonate with the content. Uh, but the ones that I did resonate with, I, I so love sometimes uh, that I do think of them as an object. I almost pick them up and hold them and uh, think about them. I was renovating a uh, residence a couple of years ago, and I had to put all, everything into uh, storage for a few years. And as we got ready to move into the new renovated place that we did, 
the, out came the books and I sort of opened up boxes and the movers chuckled because I said, oh my gosh, I forgot I had this book. Oh, I love this book so much. And so, yeah, it's, it's very interesting how books can become almost a, a piece of art mm -hmm. in your home and tell a little bit of a narrative about who you are, right? Yeah, and I think they're unlike any other object in our homes. You know, they're, they're paintings we hang on the wall, but we don't like take those down and paint on them. <laughs> We admire them on the wall. We don't interact with them the same way. We can say they're beautiful, and and there are objects that we use, you know, on our desk and you know implements and technology and stuff that are, you know, mostly functional. But books are the this thing that's you know they can be beautiful. We can interact with them. We can mm -hmm. learn from them. We can be entertained from them. Um, I, I think they're like truly magical. How much power they have. And um, you know, the printed book was invented 500 years ago, and it was brand new technology in the 1400s. Right. So to think that you know we can still be amazed by this piece of technology 500 years later that has so much power to you know, transport us, bring back memories of when we got the book, if we missed it, you know, create that, like, that joy when you see it again and it comes out of that box like you're talking about. Um, and you can get that feeling of what it was like to, to read the book or whoever gifted it to you or the store you were in when you purchased it. So, so do you think that you and I, speaking this way uh, passionately about our books, that we are uh, a dying minority? Because um, recently I was at a bookstore in Boston and I emerged with a large stack of books and I was struggling to walk up the street to the parking garage where my car was. And one of my business partners looked at me and said, what are you doing? And I said, I'm blah, blah, blah. and he said, you can get all those on your Kindle. And I said, I know, but you know, I, I want these books. And I think that books right now are probably one of the greatest investments that we can make because the return on investment in books is so amazing. The prices are so low compared to the joy that they bring you and the beauty that they have. And he said to me, well, yeah, but maybe you're the only guy left in the world that thinks that. <laughs> How do you how do you react I, to that? So I don't think so, and I I heard, I've heard all of that, yeah, over right. the years, you right. know, so especially in the early days, um, when I was still contemplating going back into the tech business, and you know talked a lot about you know what I was doing to my friends and like books, you know, didn't you get the memo that you know books are going to be gone, <laughs> Google's going to have all the books online, the Kindle wasn't yet invented until a couple years later but you know when ebooks came out and were on the rise you know people were like you're crazy like there's no reason to have a printed book anymore you can get the same information online anywhere you want anywhere in the world you don't have to go on vacation with your books you don't have to carry them down the street and i felt differently because i knew personally like coming out of that experience that i had um in 2001 with my company closing and really wanted to get back to basics and do things that were tactical and um, you know, holding things in my hand, paintbrush or a book, like I had a different relationship to a printed book than I did to reading something on a screen. And I just, it felt good and it felt good to hold the books and, you know, feel where you were in the pages. So my friends were like, why are you bothering? But I, I knew I wasn't alone. And over the years, you know, I had so many clients say to me, look, I didn't spend my whole life working so hard dreaming of this library and my retirement and sitting down to actually read books to get to this point and have someone tell me that books are extinct. Um, you know, and, and it happened enough times, enough people said, you know, I get this special feeling from reading and I absorb more information and it just calms my nervous system um, that I knew that, you know, there are other people out there like you and I 
Mm -hmm. um, and sure enough, over the, year I've built, over the years, I've built a niche business of people that love printed books. Um, and there is no real substitute. I think ebooks are additive. Um, they don't, they're just not a replacement. So uh, you're a business owner, and I know you're uh, a husband and a dad of some adolescent kids, but um, do you get a chance to read very much these days? Um, I do. And, but I will say that as a busy person, um, it's usually the first thing to go when I get busy. Um, and I have to remind myself, even as the book guy, um, to read. How many hours a week do you think you read? Um, I'd say it varies from three to ten. And do you use a Kindle? I don't. Never had a Kindle. It, no, no kind of an e-reader at all? I'll read the New York Times on my phone. Oh, yeah, right, yeah. right. Yeah. But no, no books? No, no books. What about uh, audiobooks? I love audiobooks, actually. So I almost Tell me them. about that. So, I, Because I have a hard time with audiobooks. Okay. I, I love the, the written book, and I yeah. do use a Kindle very aggressively, particularly like I'm traveling right now. Yeah. I, probably, I don't know how many hundreds of books I have on yeah. there. Uh, I prefer a physical book, but I use it for expediency. Yeah. With audiobooks... I um, have a failure to concentrate. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, I am listening to the, the Grant biography by Ron Chernow now. Yeah. Listen to 30 minutes before I went to bed last night. Can't tell you anything that happened in it, but <laughs> <laughs> okay. But it was great while I was listening to it. Um, so there's a different level of absorption of the material. And I think it's just a different brain process. Um, I still learn a lot. I, I mainly like to listen to biographies on audiobooks. Fiction doesn't really do it for me. Um, but, you know, I think it's just a good way to, you know, add to your information absorption. Um, particularly good, like, at bedtime, you know, well, as long as after I get the kids to sleep and I just want to wind down for half an hour with lights off, like, that's a nice time to put on the headphones and listen to something. Um, I do think you know, ebooks have plateaued over the past five years, I think. In terms of titles uh, sold? No, I mean, titles sold are, are increasing all the time, but just in terms of the percentage of the overall book market. I see. Whereas ebook, or sorry, audiobooks are increasing. Mm. So that's the one area of, of growth, mm. you know, in the general kind of technology driven um, market. And I think it's just because, you know, people are trying to multitask. They're Driving, traveling, working out. Yeah, I mean, after all, we're having this interview for a podcast, right? It's yeah. an audio podcast. Well, and I think, I think podcasts have allowed people to, you know, learn a lot more and absorb information in different ways and, and listen while they're doing something else. And ebooks are very similar. I mean, I think the growth in podcasting and audiobooks is, is intertwined. So, um, are you a member of a book group? I'm not, actually, yeah. And so would people think of you as a proselytizer, as an advocate for physical books, people just who know you? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. 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 I mean, I think... All right, when you give gifts, you always gift physical books? Most of the time, yeah. yeah. Right. Um, and it's, it's funny. So my, you know, my parents were in the restaurant business, like we talked about earlier. And so like whenever I'd go over to someone's house for dinner, they'd be like, oh, you know you're probably not going to think our food's good and you know, you're going to be critical. I'm like, I just want to have dinner. Like I'm hungry, you know? <laughs> and so I think a similar thing happens to me with books now. I'm like, Oh, if I'm giving books, they have to be like really special books. And I have to like be really thoughtful about it. Um, and fortunately I've got, you know, the capability to do that, yeah. and, you know, know what really is the perfect gift book for people. Um, so it's a lot of fun to do it too. So, um, 
Here you are uh, almost 20 years into Juniper Books, and you uh, are in what I would consider to be a niche market um, because uh, in our world, I mean, you know, Walmart has won the war. Walmart's the largest non-governmental organization in the world on every level, and their motto is everyday low prices. And you, and arguably I, am in a different market. We're in a more of a boutique, a niche market. And uh, can you tell me about what is like in the next chapter for Juniper Books? Sure. Yeah, and I think, you know, making it this far, having yeah. business um, for 18 years. There's validation there. Yeah. Um, I'm doing something right. But, you know, also we haven't done one thing for 18 years. I mean, I've reinvented the business every few years. So the, the first phase of the business was really about rare books and first editions. Going to buy those, you know, big lots of dusty old books and, and find the value in them and buy out old bookstores and put the inventory online, things like that. And so in 2005, about four years into it, got a request to build someone's library. They built a big house, a lot of bookshelves, but didn't have any books to put on the shelves. So kind of created this whole process for how to curate someone's library and really be a good listener about what, they, what would be on their shelves if they had the time um, to travel around and go to 100 different bookstores and build a book collection. So really made the business about custom book collections at a time when nobody had done that before. People had done books by the foot, but not really brought any intention and mindfulness to what the books were. Um, and then people were, you know, a few years into that, like 2008 to 2010, asking for things that didn't exist. Like, can you build this collection of books about the Civil War or this great collection of, you know, the 100 greatest books ever published, but can you make them pink? Can you make them in navy blue? Um, and so I started experimenting with the book jackets and then increasingly made the business about, you know, the element of design that we could transform your books and give you the content that you wanted. Then kind of from the period from 2011 to 2015 or so, went all in on creating these product sets. So working with publishers and basically stopped buying used books and antique books, except for some, some exceptions, and really focused on you know, buying Harry Potter books from Scholastic and great books from Penguin Random House and Toshin and other great publishers and curating them into these sets and collections that we could sell more than one of. And they would have custom covers on them. Yeah, so most, almost all of them have custom covers that make and, up a design. Or and a do I remember that you actually yeah. have some intellectual property on that? You have a patent? Yeah, so I filed for a patent um, and was granted that in 2016. Wow. Yeah, and so it applies to you know putting an image across multiple books, the spines of multiple books um, of different dimensions. And it's actually written in such a way that it applies to all packaging. So we could apply the same patent to, you know, box on a pallet, boxes on a pallet, or a display at a store. Um, so one of the things I might do in the long run. So, yeah, so I mean, reinvented the business every few years um, in the process of thinking about how we do that going forward. Um, we've got really two different sides to the business. There's the custom side where you can come to us and say, you know, just about anything you want. Like, you know, I love books and I have this library and I want... Um, you know, an image to go across the shelves, or I want this color, or I just want books as they're published, you know, beautiful books. And some people still come to us and say, I want first editions and rare books. Um, and then on the other side is the product side, where we're always coming out with new series and book sets, you know, around a particular theme or author. Uh, so I think there's a lot of growth potential in both of them, to be honest. So four or five years into your professional career, graduating from undergraduate school, 
you did a couple of things. Um, you were at Monitor, you did a startup, you took, uh, and very intentionally took some time off. Was that, did that end up being about a year? Um, yeah, I mean, from the time that Feedback Direct went out of business to the first book I sold was about five months. Um, but it was, you know, I didn't really get serious about full-time book selling. I actually had a screenwriting phase too. Oh. <laughs> too. Um, and so I was screenwriting and selling books. Um, so it probably took a year and a half before I said, okay, 40 hours a week at, at a minimum, I'm gonna spend selling books. So it's been about almost 20 years since then. Yeah. And you've been building this, this business full time and you've been building a family and you have other uh, things going on in your life. Um, my experience is that like 90% of the challenge for successful entrepreneur owner managers is psychological. And that um, oftentimes the challenge really is how do you get repleted along the way? Because in your business, and I'm sitting here with your team, your team is surrounding us, um, there's probably a lot of giving that you do. You give a direction, you give help, you give encouragement, you give the salespeople um, some direction. Uh, and people who give like you get depleted. Um, what are the things that you do to get repleted psychologically or physically, or are they related? The psychological and the physical side for you. Yeah. Um, so there are a lot of things I do. <laughs> I mean, for some um, people it's, it's like essential. meditation, some yeah, people it's no, yoga, some people it's working out, yeah. running, whatever. Do you have a, a go-to? Yeah. I mean, it's, it's more of a portfolio of things. Um, but so reading is one thing that yeah. really helps me slow down when I'm, you know, rushing around and doing too many things at once. Writing is another. So wrote my first book and then, you know, have another, a couple more books in the, in the works. Great. Um, go to the mountains a lot. Um, have a place about two hours from here and love to ski and bike. Um, biking has always been something that's kind of helped me get through things, uh, both road biking and mountain biking. Um, but really starting every day, I have a meditation practice. I stretch. Um, I try to read for a few minutes every morning. Um, usually that's like the New Yorker or something like that. Do you journal? Um, I journal as well. Not every single day. But okay. um, try to a couple times a week. What kind of meditation to, do you do? Go to yoga. Um, Is it like a mindfulness meditation? Yeah. Or, or, yeah, okay. yeah. I mean, it's focused on my breath and, and a mantra. Yeah. Uh, oh, so like yeah. a TM meditation or no? No. Okay. Um, just things I picked up from, you know, yeah. yoga retreats. Do you use an app or anything? Some Buddhist studies over the years. No, I, I used an app for a little while, but really found that it's just best for me to concentrate on my breath and, yeah. When you uh, mentioned, I'm, I'm very jealous when you said you've been to a meditation retreat. Was that a multi-day retreat? Yeah, I mean, I've done a yoga, a couple of yoga retreats um, that, you know, generally are about a week each. Wow. And I last summer went to Kripalu, mm -hmm. um, did a great kind of yep. writing and yoga retreat. It, out in Western Mass? In the Berkshires, yep. yeah. Yep. Um, and after I came back from that, I said, okay, I got to do this at least once a year, whether it's Kripalu or going to Costa Rica or you yeah. know, wherever. Yeah. Um, so need to need to schedule something. That that year has expired and I didn't take a retreat, so I gotta gotta get that on the calendar. Um, but you know, that kind of self care I, I think is super important. Yeah. And and I think reading is self care and a lot of people 
um, don't recognize that, but really giving yourself the time to sit in one place and focus on one thing, put down all the multitasking and you know all the demands of the world, and just focus on one thing is is very repleting, to use your word, um, in itself, as are all these other things. And I think they're just you know subtle ways to look within and you know calm our, our systems and so that we can you know get the energy to come back. But I was you know. I was really tested on all of this a couple of years ago. Um, that um, so two years ago, um, I'm just coming up on the two-year anniversary of, of finishing cancer treatment. Um, so as this you know kind of hard-charging entrepreneur, um, you know who had you know, for a few years was doing bike racing and running the business and growing it. And, you know, when the kids were young and, and really just trying to pack everything in, right. I had this, I was diagnosed with lymphoma, non-Hodgkin's lymphoma in 2017 and really forced to just bring everything to a halt and try to figure out how I could keep the business going while I was sick, um, keep my family together. Um, and, you know, with a very limited amount of energy, um, you know, how could I figure out how to sustain myself? And so it was very difficult during that period. Um, and the doctor said, okay, this is gonna take you a year and a half, two years to recover from. And I, I didn't wanna listen to that. I wanted to like just get, you know, after the cancer Let's was, do this. was beat and I did yeah. the chemo, yeah. you know, I was like, I'm just getting, I'm back to work. Yeah. And then I'd come back to work and not be able to make it through the day. Yeah. So I, the other self-care thing I do is I take a nap every afternoon. Really? Yeah. Oh man, I'm yeah. green with envy. One thirty. Yeah. Anywhere really, from. Really, really. You, yeah. you, it's non-negotiable. You've it's scheduled not, it. Yeah. Yeah. So. And do you do that here? Uh, I try to go home. Yeah. Um, walk the dog, have lunch, take my nap, twenty minutes max. Yeah. So, and I can fall asleep for like one minute, and it's like restarting your computer. Yeah, it's you know, amazing. It's, yeah. It's, it does the job. Um, so I just I don't set an alarm timer or anything. I just go home, do it. If, if I can't go home, I'll go upstairs here or, you know, find a quiet place um, to go close my eyes. And, and usually I can kind of fall asleep on command. Which is <laughs> yeah. um, and, and that's the kind of thing that, that helps me get through. And then like the afternoon is kind of a, a second day with, with a lot more energy. So I have a good friend and actually he has done a podcast interview. I don't think he'd mind me saying this because he said it on the interview. Howard Brodsky, who um, started a uh, an enterprise called CCA Global uh, from a retail carpet store. It's hard to be more basic than that, right? Into a what is now a twelve billion dollar uh, co-op. And um, Howard does uh, like you um, schedules a non-negotiable nap every afternoon. I don't know what, exactly what time it is, but he has a. Uh, a, a fairly large headquarters where they have some um, quiet rooms, meditation yeah. rooms. And in some of these meditation rooms, he's figured out that the uh, the massage chair goes for exactly 20 minutes. So he goes <laughs> to the massage chair and right. sets it and boom, then he's done. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I, I can also sort of fall asleep on command. And, and, you know, sometimes it's a 20-minute nap and sometimes it's a two-minute nap. It's actually hard for me to know yeah. because I get some, feels like almost the same level of charge out of it. Yeah. Yeah, no, I mean, I feel like, do you remember the movie Contact, the Jodie Foster? No. Space travel, I don't know, there's a scene, you know, where she, <laughs> they build the space portal or space transport system and she gets in it, you know, and falls through and to everybody else it just looks like 
she just fell to the ground. Right. And, you know, but then the videotape went on for 18 hours or something. And she had this experience of going through space travel. So sometimes, for me, that's what it feels like. like <laughs> if I great. just fall to sleep for an instant, to me, it feels like I had great dreams, my yeah. brain was refreshed, and you know, to everybody else, it's like, did you fall asleep? Yeah. Um, but it's, you know, I think our bodies crave that, and, and if we know that, then, you know, I've, I figured out that I should make sure that it happens. Yeah, I was uh, with uh, some uh, luminaries in the health span and longevity business earlier this year in Los Angeles and San Diego, and um, we were chatting about a new book uh, by an author whose name is Matthew Walker, and the book is called Why We Sleep. Do you know that book? Okay. Uh, life-changing book. Okay. Yeah, really. He, he would be the world's authority on sleep. He used to be in the UK. He's British, and now he is at Berkeley. Uh, but, um, you know, many people would say that, uh, obviously, sleep, nutrition, and exercise are sort of three building blocks for physical well-being and sometimes psychological well-being. And Matthew Walker says, actually, no. Uh, it's sleep. And then exercise and nutrition are built on the foundation of sleep. Uh, fascinating. So so coming back to your story about um, having a health challenge and getting uh, through that, and how did your team respond to that? There you were trying to take a nap in the afternoons. You were trying to survive through this. The business is growing. The business is evolving. Um, what did you find that happened inside the team? The... Sort of a mixed answer, but I mean the team that is with me today, um, you know, was incredibly hardworking and kept the business going while you know I was out of the office and dealing with a lot of distractions. Um, and while I was out of the office, you know, I was also kind of dreaming up here's what I'm going to do when I get back to work. Here's you know the business model changes we're going to make, and um, you know where we're going to cut our spending and here's where we're going to grow um, and it was kind of difficult there's a little bit of tension when I came back about you know how they had run the business which was fine they kept the business going which was amazing and I was extremely great, grateful and then here I was kind of charging back and saying you know here's all the things we're doing wrong and what we should do differently newly energized by the way newly energized but at the same time also completely exhausted oh yeah <laughs> And faking it a lot, yeah. Um, you know, pretending like I had all the energy, and, uh, but really didn't. And then when there was a little bit of tension about like, well, why do we need to change it if it's working and the business survived while you you had cancer? Um, I didn't necessarily have all the energy to kind of make the complete argument and see the changes through. Um, so to be honest, like the the first year, year and a half after cancer was kind of an adjustment period. Um, and it's only really been in the past few months, actually got divorced in that time period too. Mm -hmm. um, so it's really only been in the past few months since kind of a lot, a lot of the distractions have dissipated. Um, they've been able to bring my full focus back to work and really work with the team in a way that I hadn't done before. And in that same time period, I hired an executive coach to work with the team. And, and we did a lot of work around 15 commitments of conscious leadership. Yes. Um, which was kind of a total game changer for the team. And I kind of understood why the previous dynamic or dynamics from the, you know, during cancer and right after cancer didn't work and how, you know, if we all worked as a team um, and got on the same page and kind of used some of these same tools for communication and 
prioritization and having clean agreements and taking personal responsibility, you know, we could just be 10 times as effective as we were before. So it's very new, really, you know, we're talking in October and this work was done, um, you know, really over the summer. So you have to check back in, but I, I feel very optimistic that we've turned a new page about how we work together. I love that story. Yeah. Uh, and um, there's no reason why you'd necessarily remember this, but when we were together at the Bigelow Forum in September, one of the uh, graphics that I showed the group was a life arc of an entrepreneur. And down on the bottom left is a stage. It's a pretty early stage. I can't remember what stage. It's early. And it talks about going from a rugged individual to a unique team. Mm -hmm. uh, these are uh, terms that my friend Dan Sullivan frequently uses. And one of the comments I made at the time, I think, was in my, in my experience, most entrepreneurs never make that transition. Mm -hmm from rugged individual to unique team. And therefore, that's why so many of our businesses, literally in North America, millions, are a couple of people, mm -hmm. right? So it sounds like you're, you're bridging that. Yeah, no, I, I think we're definitely, you know, entering a new phase. And, and I look at your chart and I'm like, well, like, you know, have we done it exactly <laughs> in that linear form? Or, you know, have we kind of jumped ahead and gone back a couple steps and then, you know, Oh, hell, exactly listen, right let's just bit. be really yeah. clear. You know, I draw what's an arc, but yeah. you and I know it's a series of jagged steps. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. And, you know, and sometimes you, you know, hit one and you, you fail. You bet. And then you got to go back, back, you yes. know, and, and, and that's, you know, fortunately, we've had the time to, to do that um, and been able to adapt and evolve. But, um, yeah, I mean, I think I've learned a lot of lessons about myself and, you know, both, I have a lot of ideas, you know, and I'm very creative and not only in like the products we create, but, you know, and how we create them, the processes and all that. And, but I can't do everything myself. And as the business grows, um, you know, need to find new ways to, to bring other teammates on board and, and really transfer some of my knowledge and skills and, um, you know, why we do things the way we do may not be inherently obvious at the, the beginning. And this is a lot of stuff that I learned from my parents, too, that, um, you know, they always talked about, I mean, just like the quality of everything that went into the Quilted Giraffe, yes. you know, from the, the farms that they purchased from to, you know, how the glasses were polished um, to the uniforms and everything. I mean, I think I try to, some things are not inherently obvious when you're selling something that other people sell that there is a different way to do it um, in terms of, you know, the condition of the books for us or, you know, color matching, um, you know, how you pack the books is like super important. And it may seem like it's not a big deal until it is a big deal. So I think transitioning that from that rugged individual, like, let's just do it my way. Right. Um, to, you know, other people saying, ah, you know, I understand now why we do it. And I could teach it to somebody else. Mm -hmm. um, and I can explain how it, this all goes together to, you know, elevate us doing something that, you know, not only, I mean, probably because we do something that not anybody else does, like, we don't have to go the extra mile on a lot of things. But, I mean, I think that's why we're here 18 years later, that we do go the extra mile. And I've had clients that have been with me for, you know, almost all that time since I've been doing the custom collections and they come back for their Christmas gifts and then their new house and then sure. their interior designer, you know, does a hotel and they hire us. Sure. Um, so that customer service and loyalty and just, you know, doing things differently, even if people don't 
notice it right now, they'll notice it in the long run. So as you think about uh, where you are in your career and your life, and um, you've had some life challenges that have put maybe this question into a, a very clear focus, do you think, Thatcher, that there's an unavoidable um, choice to be made between being, let's say, a great parent and a super successful entrepreneur or manager? Um, I don't think so. I think, I think in the world we live in, it's very, you know, linear and you're kind of taught to like, it's one or the other. Um, and then you, people spend a lot of money and time trying to figure out how to create balance, but then they don't actually do it. Right. You know, they'll like work 80 hours a week and then go to a retreat and then, you know, be like, this is so great. I'm going to change my life and then go back to work for 80 hours. Um, you know, I decided early on, so, so my parents worked so hard, um, they were never around. Um, they were around, but they were never around. Right. I mean, I lived above the restaurant, but I never saw them. <laughs> um, saw the waiters and the, the cooks more than I saw them. And if I wanted to see them, I had to go to staff dinner. Right. Um, and, you know, I decided that, that I wanted to be around for my kids. Um, and for years, the business was based in the basement. So for seven or eight years in the business. Okay. Um, it's kind of co-located, you know, the kids were upstairs, got to see them, change the diapers, and then, you know, go back and ship some packages out for, for eBay orders. Um, now we've got, you know, 6,000 square feet here and, and a great facility and the kids are at school. So, <laughs> um, but I think like it was important to me to find that balance and how to be sustainable, um, to be able to see my family, to be able to ride my bike, to be able to get to the mountains and do the things I love to do but also have a successful business. And to me, you know, I, th I think I could have gone back to the tech world or consulting or sure. finance or anything, sure. but, I, but I made a pretty conscious decision that like, you know, it's, life is about more than the money and it's about, you know, just being a whole person and doing something that's sustainable and, and intellectually and creatively stimulating and, and doing something that's good for the world. Like feeling like I, I have an impact and I'm doing something positive, encouraging people to read, bringing some beauty into the world. And so when having that view, yeah. um, are, you, are you teaching your kids about the world of work? Yeah, I mean, we definitely talk about it a fair amount. Um, and we, they come to the office quite a fair amount. Uh, my son, both kids are very entrepreneurial. Um, yeah. So actually, my son loves to work. He's taking a break from it, but he, he learned how to sew. I don't know how to sew, but I bought a sewing machine to, oh, yeah. and then I couldn't figure it out. Yeah. Uh, he figured it out and he had a little business sewing pillows. Oh yeah. Um, and I built him his website for um, his eighth birthday. And then he took it over, managed it, and he like sold pillows to the family and custom pillows. Nice. Super, super cute. Tell him to keep on because my best friend is a, a very, very well-known, world-known ocean sailor. Mm -hmm. racing sailor who started life as a sailmaker mm -hmm. and here uh you know umpteen up years later uh if you he wants to he can still sit down and yeah. off he goes That's to the cool. sewing machine yeah. and make whatever you yeah. want to make it's a really cool skill yeah. i've often admired it yeah no so he'll come back to that and and my daughter you know also has great ideas and and very entrepreneurial and creative um so yeah so i do teach them about work um, they get to see it and absorb it firsthand. 
Um, I think, you know, one of the things that was like really, that I absorbed through osmosis through my parents was just that like, they didn't go to school for what they did in the restaurant business, but they just like, they had great ideas and they just tried them out, they experimented and they, they didn't concern themselves with the risk of, you know, oh, I didn't go to French culinary school or, you know, whatever it may be. Um, they just did stuff. And so I've really tried to do that. And I, and I hope that's maybe the biggest lesson that the kids can take away. Um, you know, just do stuff and you don't have to have, I mean, it can help some things you need to plan and other things like just see where the universe takes you. So let's just, let's just yeah. double click on that for a second sure. because that, that's of great interest to me, um, as anyone listening to positive enterprise value or knows me knows I am a planner, uh, I think that having some um, destinations sort of uh, sketched in pencil is a way to allocate resources. So as in a business, it might be cash, people, time, technology. For an individual, it might be positive energy or time or talent. Uh, but I am fascinated by the fact that uh, there's a different school which, lets, which basically says, let's see what doors open and let's just be really aware of those and see if we can capitalize on those. You strike me as being someone who's a little bit of each. Is that accurate? Yeah, I, de I definitely say that that's, that's accurate. And I think I'm more the kind of follow the paths, you know, that, and the doors that open um, at the moment, but know that I need to bring myself back to some planning, especially mm -hmm. as the company gets bigger and, you know, some plans would be helpful for the team. Um, right. Marketing, sales, you know, as we, as we grow there. And we want to keep growing. So, you know, but I think my, to get to where I am right now, it was very much about like, oh, if, if one customer asked for something, there's probably another 20 or 100 out there who want the same thing. So let's, you know, let's do more of that and less of this other thing that nobody seems to be noticing. Um, and oh, let's, you know, let's do this because it just feels creative and innovative and new. And maybe we'll find the market for it. Um, and, and some doors have opened up there. Um, and let's, you know, talk to some of the people that are on the, the leading edge of, of trends or interior designer clients and architects, you know, if they're building these, you know, cool bookshelves that are a certain color or size or whatever, like, you know, tr just put our hat on and say, is that a trend? And is it, and it's not that we're trendy, but it's like, are there other people that want the same thing? Um, and because, you know, I think at the core, it's not so much that we do X, Y, Z, and you know, we have Harry Potter books or custom libraries. I mean, it's really that we innovate within the book world. We do things that nobody else is doing, that publishers, booksellers can't do. But that there are people who love books, people who love design, that want to put the two together in new and creative ways. And we can, you know, we can do that in a way that nobody else in the book world does. Yeah, I mean, we're really, really lucky that we're sitting here in 2019, right? Because with the technology that we have, it allows us to access the same information globally that the largest organizations in the world can. In fact, in fact, I might argue that there's a diseconomy of scale that they have by being uh, so large. And so it allows you to really take the temperature of, do you have an addressable market? Do you have customers who are nodding their heads and saying yes and allows you to go down that road? We're really lucky to have the technology platform to be able to do that, right? Yeah. No, and I've, I've, um, we have a list of, you know, core principles and stuff. And one of them is about, you know, the appropriate role of technology. 
in our business. And it's, it's not, some people might look at us and say, oh, you're all about analog books, how old fashioned and charming, you know, and you know, while everybody else is reading on a Kindle. But it's not about being a Luddite. It's about using technology appropriately to do what we do in a way that you know, has never been done before. So reaching that global audience, having them be able to find us through our website and you know, be able to treat a client in Hong Kong just as well as one in, you know, in Denver. Um, and using technology for design, printing, um, and you know, being able to evaluate materials that, that make books look really cool and colorful and different um, in a way that nobody really did before. So it's really about the appropriate use of technology and, and harnessing it to do what we do in our niche really well without being a tech company. Have you um, seen this uh, new documentary called Inside Bill's Brain? No, I, I was thinking about watching it, but I, I need to see it. I highly recommend yeah. it. Okay. Uh, I, it's either Amazon Prime or Netflix, yeah. whichever, but uh, it's in three episodes. Um, you know, in my career, uh, Bill Gates is a teensy bit older than I am, but our careers sort of span the same amount of time. And so uh, I was interested to understand what the um, producer of the documentary and the director were trying to accomplish. And I would just say um, they really got my attention. It's really interesting. And Bill Gates, as most people probably know, basically doesn't leave his home without a big, you know, canvas what I call an LL bean bag full of books, uh, analog books, uh, which um, is an interesting comment on your business. So you and I have spoken other times about experiences that um, most successful people, we, we let me say most, are um, continuous, curious, passionate readers. Um, are there a handful of books that you feel like have really positively influenced your life? Yeah, and I'm, you know, I, when I'm asked this question about, you know, my favorite books, I guess it's a little bit different than, you know, books that have influenced me. Yeah. Um, but I still would come back to my, my favorite books and books that were just kind of pivotal in my evolution as a person. Yeah, what were they? Um, well, going back to my childhood, I mean, I remember like The Never Ending Story was um, the first book that I, I didn't want to end and I really regretted. Like I checked it out from the school library in Upper West Side of New York and, and I had to give it back. It was like not only did this book end that wasn't supposed to end, it was just like the first real page turner um, that I had read, uh, but I didn't get to keep it on my shelf. And I can remember that, that day that I handed it back and I, I think it um, informs you know what I do now and, and how I think that these objects that are important in our lives you know it's nice to keep them on our shelves and remind us of who, of who we are um, so that was one important book um, I remember reading The Adventures of Tom Sawyer um, and Catcher in the Rye and, and feeling kind of similarly like so engaged in I mean with Tom Sawyer it was another period time period another place but like just like the storytelling that that pulled you into another world and you forgot about everything that you had going on, you know, while you, you follow the characters and with the catcher in the rye, that was probably the first book where I felt like the narrative voice, like you could see, I could see myself in the story. Um, and I think that also gave me like a different relationship to the page and to the book, um, that it wasn't just like some, maybe that like sparked the idea that one day I could be a writer. <laughs> um, 
you know, it wasn't just like there are writers and they're up on pedestal, you know, there, this is like a very interactive thing um, that you can tell a story and you can engage other people and they can see themselves in it. And then, you know, fast forward, I remember reading um, A World Lit Only by Fire by William yeah. Manchester. Yeah. And that was one of the books that, you know, led me to become a history major. Yeah. I was just like, history can be fascinating and, and depending on how you tell the story, um, you can really get people interested in it, whether or not they're interested in that particular time period or, or biographical figure. Like, you can just tell a story that's fascinating. Um, yeah, and, and lately, you know, there's no one book that sticks with me, yeah. but I, I kind of go back and forth between, I always have, like, some literature, a history or biography going, and, like, a productivity or self-improvement business kind of book. Yeah, me too. Um, yeah. yeah, and I that kind of variety yeah. stimulates my brain in different ways, and you can, you know, it's kind of like when you open Netflix and you're like, should I watch the Bill Gates documentary or a movie or a TV yeah, I agree. show? Yeah, Yeah, you're like, what do I feel like? What do I need right now? Um, and that that, you know, that helps me stay entertained and continuously learning. Both my parents have, uh, have left us recently. Uh, they're in both 92, and part of the um, amazing thing that uh, happens when uh, you pull together your siblings and went through some of my parents' old boxes and trying to figure out what to do with this stuff, but I came across, happily for me, um, a couple of books, so to answer my question to you, that actually my parents had that actually were the actual physical books from my childhood. Mm -hmm. So um, they're not in great shape, but one of them was Contiki. Mm -hmm. Another one was this little uh, story uh, called Dove, which was about a 16-year-old Robin Lee Graham who sailed around the world. And as many people know, I'm a, I'm a cruising sailor. Uh, or, um, uh, you know, the Cane Mutiny, Herman Woke, mm -hmm. which led me to read all of Woke. Uh, so, I think some of that early uh, reading is profoundly influential on us, right? And formation forms some of our character, mm -hmm. uh, and uh, it's awfully fun to go back and revisit it. Mm -hmm. I, I don't usually travel without a copy of uh, Marcus Aurelius' Meditations, mm. oh, well. okay. and I usually have some William James along because mm -hmm. anything that he's written about psychology mm -hmm. is interesting to me. Mm -hmm. But yeah, I, I think uh, if you can understand this about a person, you can maybe understand them more deeply than you would otherwise. Yeah, and I, I think I mean, it's a real honor to do what I do and, and have that connection to people through their books. And in some respects, like it's more personal than being their personal trainer or something. Um, <laughs> it is, yeah. Yeah, because they, I mean, some people are very avid readers and really know what they like, and, and other people you know, just want books and want to discover something new. Um, but no matter what, I mean, it really, our books become a reflection of, of who we are, where we've been, where we're going. They can be a reminder, you know, of, of who we were and who we want to be. And in a way that, you know, other things are not in our homes. And um, so I just, I feel really fortunate to, you know, be able to have conversations with a lot of business leaders and people in Hollywood and, you know, people that are like super busy, um, but still make the time to read. So some of the people listening to this podcast, Thatcher, uh, will be um, want, uh, aspiring entrepreneurs. Uh, some of them will be students, undergraduate students, uh, graduate students. If you could give a recommendation for a couple of books to them as aspiring entrepreneurs, do you have any off uh, top of mind? Um, so 
have to look up the title, but I think two two of like the early business books that I read that I thought were really engaging. One was the history of Coca Cola, mm-hmm. um, and I can't remember what it was called, but that was one of the first business books that I thought you know that was inspiring and well written. And even though I don't drink Coke, <laughs> as we talked about earlier, um, you know I found it to be entrepreneurially um, encouraging yeah. um, how to build a, a lasting business. Um, remember the, the first book by Howard Schultz um, okay. was, yeah. was also... The founder of Starbucks. Inspiring, yeah. yeah. Um, I think, you know, I still think about, I can't like quote all the things to you these today, but, you know, when I worked at Monitor, which was founded by a guy named Michael Porter from, sure. from Harvard Business School... Yeah. Um, he wrote competitive strategy, right. competitive advantage. You know, I still think about a lot of those things that I learned. Yeah, as do we from reading the book. You know, mm-hmm. about you know, you can't compete on everything. You know, you got to compete on price, like Walmart, or compete on quality and service, mm-hmm. which is more of you know what we do, um, and a lot of other you know, consulting bullet points. Um, but I think you know having those kind of formative. Um, books about not only like how do you think about what you're going to do and write a business plan but also you know how do you tell the story to your customers of of what you do and why it's different and and i guess i will say fast forwarding to right now I, most of my brain was just thinking about like what was instrumental 20 25 years ago i mean the the two books they're very instrumental right now in our business um in addition to enterprise value <laughs> are um the 15 Commitments of Conscious Leadership, right, and Building a Story Brand um, by a guy named Donald Miller. Oh, I don't know the book. Yeah, and it's all about, you know, how to tell the story of what you do to your mm-hmm. customers in a way that they can, you know, understand it and see themselves in the story. Oh, cool. So a lot of companies, like, mm-hmm. you know, say, we do all these great things for you. Um, and this is more about shifting it. So it's like the customers can kind of see themselves in the narrative. Um, and you know, just having a clear, simplified message, having a clear call to action, and their background is a lot in screenwriting, and I think part of that um, is the reason why it appeals to me. Sure. Um, because I think we're we're all storytellers, and we just we're not faking it by telling a story about our products. Like it's just how we understand the world. Um, so that's been instrumental in, in shaping our business these days. So you. Um I was going to say, you followed a somewhat non-traditional path to becoming a successful entrepreneur, owner, manager, but truly, um, there's a lot of different paths that my friends or clients follow. Um, But you strike me as one who's particularly thoughtful and uh, an independent thinker about your path so far. What is some of the worst advice you hear being given to would-be entrepreneurs? Um, some of the worst advice. Um, because, in, because, hear it, because in our world, we have, there, there's yeah. a little, uh, there's a little vocabulary nuance here. So I think much of our mass culture might hear the word entrepreneur and think about Silicon Valley. Mm-hmm. And that's not who I'm referring to. I'm right. talking about entrepreneur owner managers, right. people who have skin in the game, who some of them are founders of businesses like you. Others of them are people who are guiding family-owned businesses that might be multi-generational. 
I'm just wondering if you have people who are aspiring entrepreneurs, would there sure. be some, some advice that you think was just terrible and on reflection? Yeah, I mean, I think in general with mass media and the culture today, I mean, there's definitely what you see the most of in terms of like celebrity culture and celebrity kind of businesses, you know, the, the tech companies that yes. you know, went from zero to, you know, 10 billion really quickly. I mean, what you're seeing there represents, you know, an infinitesimal part of the, the world, really. I mean, they may constitute a large part of the economy once they become Facebook or Amazon or Google. If they do. Right. And, and the odds are stacked against you. Um, it doesn't mean you shouldn't try, but the reality is that most of the economy and most entrepreneurs, you know, you have to build something that makes money. You have to build something that customers want. Um, and that they're willing to pay for. Um, and you have to build your organization in a way that's sustainable, that you know, you don't have to be the one packing the boxes 24 hours a day. You're not gonna be able to do that. Um, it may be fun for a little while and you know, a lot of a big adrenaline rush, but you're gonna have to take a lot more than a 20 minute nap every day <laughs> <laughs> to survive that. So, so I think you know, people, whether it's advice or just you know what they see in the papers every day and on TV, you know they, they think that that's the way to build a successful business. But when it comes down to it, you know it's I think slow and steady wins the race, and you know being one step ahead of you know the world, but in a way that is really doesn't come from like having a crystal ball. I mean, it just comes from being a good listener, to be honest, and some balance of following your own intuition, but then listening to your customers and listening to the market as well. That's great. Yeah. So in this group of listeners to um, Positive Enterprise Value, uh, I would say um, among entrepreneur owner managers, some people are advisors to owner managers, some people are aspiring entrepreneur owner managers. But one thing that's common is that success and achievement is common in a lot of them. Uh, but not all of them would describe themselves as fulfilled or content. Would you describe yourself as fulfilled or content? Um, yeah, I definitely would. And I, and I think, so some people I think feel like they have to work really hard and then make a lot of money and then they'll be fulfilled and content. Like that it's one thing happens and then the other one. People do think that, don't yeah, they? Yeah, but I, I made a very conscious choice. You know, when I decided to sell books full time, that like, it wasn't gonna be the most lucrative thing in the world. It was gonna be fulfilling. And I would have time to spend you know, on my bike and on the slopes and with my kids. And um, you know, I, don't, I don't regret that. And I think it's just, you have to be willing to say, you know, I'm gonna do what feels right and what's good for me and hopefully what's good for the world. Um, and, and most of the friends that have like chosen the other path, and I have a lot of them, um, that's like, I'm going to go make a lot of money. I'm going to go work on Wall Street. I'm going to go Silicon Valley or whatever. Um, they have a lot more money, but they're not happy. Um, and I'm generalizing. I mean, some of them are happy, but I think, I think you have to really check in with yourself and, and figure out, you know, life is pretty short. Um, and, you know, it's a cliche, you know, but it's like, 
well, I don't even know what the cliche is because I don't know any cliches. <laughs> but something about you know how experiences are more important than you know, right. things you can buy. Sure. So you know, and I, I think that's definitely been true. I mean, my best days are are spent. Uh, <laughs> sorry, getting a little emotional. It's um, great. You know, with with my kids and in the outdoors, and and I'm fortunate that I have a very creative business that is also very fulfilling. Um, but when I think about like my best days, I mean, they, they are the days that, you know, I went skiing with my kids and things like that. Yeah. I mean, we referred, you, we referred before to work-life balance yeah. and, um, people who know me know that I say work-life balance schmalance because I don't know how you do work-life balance. What I see you've done very positively, fabulously is work-life integration which means you don't have to try to balance. It's not a seesaw. You're integrating, whether it's the kids coming in here with the dog in the afternoon or going out you know, skiing. It's awesome. So I really, really envy that. Thank you. I appreciate that. And, you know, it takes work. You know, nothing, nothing, it doesn't just happen. It's so hard, isn't it? Because we're in a culture which doesn't really approve of that or make it easy, right. do they? No. And, and you, you still have to, you know, Everybody wants to, to think that that's easy, right? And on social media and everything, you know, yeah. everybody wants to like tell the story that like, their life is so great and, you know, you're missing out um, because you're not in, you know, the vacation spot with them or whatever. But, I mean, I think everybody also knows the reality that, like, you don't just do one thing and then you get to do the other. Like, so I've tried to interweave these things and just work at it every day and then remind myself to take care of myself, take care of the family, take care of, you know, the team here, nurture everything because it, it could all go away pretty quickly. It's a pretty precarious balance. Um, so just recognizing that, you know, that I'm never really going to get to the point where it's like, oh, now I can just relax and read books. You know, it's, yeah. Great it's words nice. of wisdom. <laughs> Thatcher, I want to thank you so yeah, much for uh, having this interview with me. Thank you, Pete. It's a pleasure.